1: Hello everyone, I'm Chris Wynn. Welcome to the Roker Report podcast in association with the Sunderland Community Soup Kitchen, where today we have something a little bit special. Today we have one of the most iconic voices in football. It was up there alongside the greats when it comes to football commentary, with a staggering amount of Champions League and FA Cup finals under his belt, not to mention 30 years of major international tournaments, and if that's not all, he's also been the voice of so many iterations of FIFA computer games, which I'm sure were the the younger listeners might, um, might recognize the voice from and for people even as old as me was the voice of Championship Manager 2 back in the day which, which I remember fondly. Uh, today of course we are privileged to welcome Clive Tulsley. Welcome Clive.
2: Championship manager, too. Now, you that really does date you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I never, I never mentioned my age, but the, my, my mention of computer games generally leads people to understand how old they am. But welcome <laughs> to the Rock Report podcast. It's great to have you on.
2: It's a delight. Thanks for asking me.
1: Uh, how are you keeping now? Are, are you coping in this uh heat wave we're currently in the middle of? I never complain about uh hot weather. I'm from
2: Manchester where everybody knows it rains every day so. If I wake up to a blue sky, I'll live with the penalties that go with it.
1: <laughs> yeah, take take it while you can get it. Yeah, I'm sure people in in Sunderland are kind of nodding along to that sentiment. I'm sure, but yeah, like I said, you know, soundtrack to so many of hours of me growing up with football. You know, computer games on the on the TV, and I know we've had this recording scheduled for a little while, and I, I you know I had a long drive at the weekend, and as I was driving along. Your voice came over the airwaves on Talk Sport live from Craven Cottage on the opening day of the season. So how did you enjoy your start of the Premier League season in the capital?
2: I can live without an, an obstructive view seat when I'm <laughs> conversating on the radio. Um, I, uh, Craven Cottage is an absolute delight. I think that you know, when you're privileged enough to have, have visited stadia of real character, and actually, if I'm very honest, give me Roker over Stadium of Light every time, I remember Peter Reed, who is I'm sorry, I name dropped, but I go way back with Peter Reed. My first big job in radio was on Merseyside, covering Everton and Liverpool when Reedy was in his pomp as a player. And I was the same age as the players. And back in the day, you not only spent a lot of time hanging around waiting for interviews uh, with them, but you went out for a pint with them after a game. And and Peter did go out for a pint after a game, strangely. Um and I remember him very proudly showing me around Stadium of Light for the first time, my first visit. And um I said, yeah, but it's not Roker, is it? That was my reaction to it. And I said, it does look quite a bit like a lot of other stadia. And I could see him being mortally wounded. It's bigger, bigger than, than a lot of the other. But there were quite a number of stadia built of that ilk at that time. And when you're privileged enough to have visited a stadium like Roker Park, which could only, if you were shown a photograph of Roker Park, it could only be Roker. If you're shown a picture, how, how can I say this without insulting every and fan listening? It, it 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 might just be the Riverside. I'm sorry, but it might just, if you took the photograph in a certain way. So Craven Cottage is an absolute delight still to visit, but as with Roker, it comes with its handicaps. And one of them is that when everybody stands up in front of you and your positions in that old Johnny Haynes stand, you can't see either goal.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel kind of privileged enough to remember Roger Park and I'm, I'm so glad I had that experience because, like you said, I mean, just the whole experience of going to football is completely different now. And I remember speaking to John Ficklin about the, the Peter Reid years and he always said when Peter Reed was interviewing for the job at the beginning, he said he... He went in to kind of talk about the job. And and I think Roger Park was part of this, that one of his first lines was that he described Sunderland as a proper football club. But John Ficklin said straight away, I knew what he meant because of that history with Roger Park. And we didn't have, you know, some of the the glitz of maybe some of the other football clubs. And it just had that slightly different feeling about it with that, that history behind it.
2: Well, I mean, Sunderland's a long way from anywhere. And, you know, <laughs> back in those days... It, and it's an extraordinary thing to report. As a member of the local media, I used to travel with the team, with Everton and Liverpool, when they were the best two teams in England, maybe the world, best two club teams. And, and I would travel on the on the team coach and stay in the hotel with them the night before. Liverpool always used to stay at the county in Durham, either for Sunderland or Newcastle. But I'm pretty certain I remember waking up in a hotel would that be Seaburn, just to up the the road, the Whitburn Road, just up there? And yeah. I mean, to, to wake up before, a, I guess it was a first division game, maybe I don't know. Yeah, it must have been a first division game then. And hear the seagulls and see the beach <laughs> and, and go for a walk, literally along the beach, just up the road from Broker Park and. You can't recreate, it was the Roker Roar. It it was famous and it was famous because you and your fathers and grandfathers on the Full Well end made it, the Roker Roar. It was one of those stadiums that really rocked, you know, when a big team came to town and when Sunderland were playing well. And Peter's pride would be the same pride as anybody who had to visit Roker on a daily basis and now was at the Stadium of Light. It's just better. Everything is better. And maybe as Sunderland fans, everything's just better at the Stadium of Light than it was at Roker. I mean, the old commentary, TV commentary position at Roker was a hazard, particularly when the wind was blowing. But, you know, whether, it, whether age sort of dates our memories and whether we get just a little nostalgic for things that weren't that great. But Roker it is, yeah, it's a part of my, you know, early years, just as. Burnden Park is just, you know, just as a lot of just as Ayrton Park was. Um, and I'll never forget those stadia. And but Roker was particularly special because, particularly as I say, you went up on the Friday night and you woke up to that view on Saturday morning,
1: yeah. And actually, just because you've mentioned it there, one of my early memories of and I think it was it used to be the match on on ITV, and I think um, it was a game in April or May which obviously means in Sunderland it was blown a gale and it was absolutely <laughs> chucking it down. Um, but it, it the, the camera panned to the crow's nest, which I think you kind there of yeah. described there on, on top of the old clock stand, and huddled together were Brian Moore and Jimmy Greaves, all kind of shivering up on the crow's nest. I mean, did you ever have that experience as well up there?
2: Yeah, the rain, it, it didn't just rain, it came in horizontally, of course. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, the, 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 there was some saying about if you could see the sea, then whatever the rain was half an hour away. And if you can't see the sea, it's already rushed. Something like that. But yeah, I read somewhere that it's now a kind of um housing estate with the most terrible road names. Is that right? It, like Midfield <laughs> it is, Road yeah. or something. Instead of Hurley Street, it's got really NAF names. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a promotion clause in there. no. there's um <laughs> There's no there's no relegation street, I hope. Um, I haven't heard that one, but there's definitely a promotion close.
2: They can have a playoff final street now. They couldn't before, but they can now.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, fantastic memories. And I'll circle back to, to more, more Sunderland stuff. But, I mean, just, just for, for your career, I mean, going back to where it all started, I mean, I'm not sure if this is true, but I read that you initially studied uh, economics at university and uh, then you finished that and, of course, went straight into sports commentating so I assume that when your first opportunity came along that the economics just went straight out the window I always
2: wanted to be a football commentator You know, your parents recollections of your childhood are not always the most reliable they tend to be uh, tinged with romance but um you know I was that kid who ran around the, the back garden kicking a football and commentating at the same time and um when I went to university, I would love to have taken some kind of media related course. But I think there were probably three or four in the entire further education network back back in the 1970s, we're talking about when I went to university. So I had to almost create my own media course. And I sort of did a deal with my dad who was in business, not at a high level. But, you know, he obviously had done his best to give me a good education and wanted me to go into a profession that you know, would which would sort of look after my interests for the rest of my life. And um, when I managed to wheedle my way into a local radio station in Nottingham that was opening at the same time as I was graduating from university and started to cover a mid-table team under the um, management of a guy some of you may have heard of called Brian Clough, um, my dad sort of said, well, see how it goes for six months. And if it's not working out, you can always become an accountant. <laughs> and then he met Cluffy and Cluffy absolutely spoiled him, you know, and, and made him feel really, really important. It took him into the dressing room. I remember where I was never allowed to go. <laughs> and uh, my dad, from that point, I always felt that it was, it was worth a punt to see if I could make it as a broadcaster. So, but I wasn't what, well, once I had a foot in the door and, I, and my first gig was as a late night rock DJ, would you believe? Uh, once I had a foot in the door. Yeah. I always wanted to work on sport and that, And the first break is always the the biggest break and getting that chance in Nottingham straight from university and finding myself attached to a team that was going nowhere. And within four years, had had won the title, won the European Cup and retained it. Uh, And those guys are all mates of mine. And and Martin O'Neill, who obviously is one of the former Sunderland managers, I know best was my... First great friend, really, in, in football, and, and is to this day. Yeah, That really was the most wonderful break. And just to be around Brian, I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not telling tales out of school to say that he wasn't great when he was drinking, and that was the only battle that he couldn't win, And it, but it was very much a part of his life, and all of us who worked with and around him had to live with that. But um, when he was sober and on it, he was just the most electric company.
1: I mean, that that's an incredible kind of, you know, first assignment without, you know, yeah. anything kind of training behind you. I mean, it must have been like, you know, to be with Brian Clough and those days, like a condensed fast track PhD in reporting. I mean, was it, was it must have been a steep learning curve.
2: Yeah, it was a bit of a bully. As, as indeed, I, I think a lot of the great sort of managers of that era were, you know, I was fortunate enough to work quite closely with Alex Ferguson in in subsequent years. Uh, I can tell you a great story about him at the stadium. Like, I will tell you a great story later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But um, what he did do was lay down parameters which are relevant in my job to this day. You know, I told you he invited my dad into the dressing room. Funny enough, he once caught me interviewing Martin in the dressing room. This is like a Tuesday afternoon. that city ground was empty and it was just after training. And it, it was just the most convenient place to sit down and find a quiet spot and interview Martin. And Brian walked in and found me there. And he almost sort of walked me out by my ear and gave me the, you know, the young man, do you play for Nottingham Forest? Uh, no, I don't. Then you do not come in my dressing room. If you're good enough to play in my team, you can come in my dressing room and all of that. And it's right. It's correct. And, you know, I've been invited into a hundred dressing rooms down the years at various times, but I've always kind of looked over my shoulder to see if the ghost of Brian is wagging one of his fingers at me and, um, uh, to rebuke me from, for stepping across the threshold that's where the players and the managers belong it's not where the media or the cameras belong and um, those kind of rules that he, he laid down I say a lot of them um, I live by to this day. He was he in that sense. He was a great first manager to work with.
1: Mm. Uh, and, I mean, you've already touched on not just with Brian Clough, but you're talking about you've already mentioned being on the the coaches with the players, being friends. You know, Martin O'Neill being one of your, your first friends in football. You know, you're actually friends with the actual players themselves. I mean, do you do you have a bit of sympathy now for for journalists in the modern day who are kind of essentially kept at arm's length, you know, from the players by? you know, media teams, where it seems like there's suspicion on both sides and it's almost become a game of cat and mouse to get a thought from the players and management that hasn't been drilled into them by a media team beforehand.
2: The biggest single change that I've seen in my 4,000 years in in the job is the distance that's grown between football and its media. And uh, I think both sides are to blame for it. And who suffers? The fans. I mean, j- just the basic ethos of why do we have reporters in football, be it in broadcast or uh, you can barely call it print now, online uh, platforms of one kind or another, they are the link between the fans who will never meet the players and themselves. And, um, I mean, that link is now fudged a little bit by social media and by the selfie and uh, yeah, that whole relationship between the fan and the player, I think, has changed We've created the monsters that don't come anywhere near us anymore, and us being both fans and media, because of our behaviour towards them, and and the kind of ownership we, that we feel we have over guys who have private lives and and they're entitled however much they're paid. You know they are entitled to live a life over and beyond that. I, I always buck at the suggestion that young footballers are role models. I mean, young rock stars are not role models. We expect young rock stars to be a bit crazy and mad and do things we don't want our kids to do. And then we get shocked when young footballers do. They're just young people, and young people whose lives are changed by their talent and how it's uh, rewarded. And I think the media has got to be more appreciative of that. But, I mean, I'm I'm shooting in the dark at at changing any of that. But there, there were understandings and trust, you know, in in those my early reporting years. And and a lot of those friendships built on trust are in place to this day. Again, I'm I'm name dropping here. The funny of Mick McCarthy and his wife Fiona came to stay with us for a night last week. They're really, really good friends. And the first time I ever met Mick socially was at a charity event. And somebody kind of tried to introduce and said, do you know, you, you know, Mick? And I said, yeah, and shook his hand. And Mick being Mick said, no, you don't. <laughs> and I said, "Well, you know, we've worked together." And I was, yeah, yeah. said, "Yeah, yes, but that's not Mick McCarthy." And that was, <laughs> that was typical typical me. He said, "That the guy you interview when I come out of the dressing room after a three nil defeat he said, and and you're the first walker I see." <laughs> that's, I said, "I'm not. You're not talking to Mick McCarthy. You're talking to the manager of whoever, Wolves Sunderland, whatever." I'm as low as I can be, and you're asking me difficult questions. That's not the relationship that we've got now, and we still laugh about that. I'm going put it in the book, but it's true. And and the the relationships that you build with these guys over and above your your working relationship is quite separate. But it, it's still that the working relationship still built on a trust that we know each other, we know where we stand as two people, and now as two professionals. And you know, too much of that trust has been broken, and it's a shame because, as I say, it's the fans who become excluded really from the relationship that football should have with its media. people, people like you are bridging that gap. And Roker Report is one of the, like, like the Anfield rap, and, and one or two other major success stories where the club have recognised the importance of appreciating you as part of their mainstream media. And it's really good to have somebody like Dave Jones on board who gets media and gets Media relations. Um, I'm not sure that Alex particularly does, but that's fine. He's the manager. As long as there's somebody who does and can bridge the gap. Now definitely does. And, and I think it that's probably going to be the way forward. We're going to see lots of in-house TV, which is going to be very controlled and yeah, like media departments and so on. But I think savvy media departments are going to look at, you know, podcasts and fanzines that the fans trust and they know are a definite link directly to their. Most loyal supporters. And then it's up to you guys really to honor that special relationship that you've got with the club.
1: Yeah. And just talking about that closeness, I mean, my dad always told me, you know, stories of, you know, collecting coal down the seafront alongside Brian Clough, when he played for the club, you know, so, so things have uh, well, things have changed just a tad since then, but uh, but I mean, talking about those those relationships, I mean, you, you, you covered probably one of the the best Everton sides that, that there's ever been, um, when you kind of moved to Merseyside with Radio City, and they came close to doing the treble in 1985, and of course, two of their big players, were you've mentioned Peter Reid already, and Paul Bracewell, who have big ties with Sunderland, um, and I mean, just, just on Bracewell, he was probably robbed of tens of you know England caps, uh, you know, because of that ankle injury that he had. But I mean, I mean, just on on those two, I mean, just how good were they as a pair? You know, what, what was it like being around that squad, especially with characters like Peter Reed around the place?
2: They were a couple of rascals. They were. The, I mean, they're streetwise <laughs> enough individually, but together, I mean, they, they hunted. They hunted as a two-man pack on and off the <laughs> field in terms of windups and. But Brace played. Uh, about two, three months at the end of that 85, 86 season with a broken bone in his leg, you know, that, which obviously affected his fitness from that point onwards. I mean, they were they were very much players of the... They were really good players. If you ask a player who played against Reedy, they tell you he was, he was pretty quick over the first 10 yards. He started blowing a bit after that. <laughs> but um, And by the way, he's, he's, he's fighting weight today. In fact, I think he's probably a bit lighter today than he was when he played. But they, I, I guess they were players that we categorise, we, we categorise all footballers, don't we? You know, they were categorised as two hard-working, hard-tackling centre midfield players. But Reedy really could run with the ball and Brace could pass the ball. And they were extraordinary years to be on Merseyside. The 1986 FA Cup final between Everton and Liverpool, after the two of them had contested the title race into the final week of the season, some some people may remember the iconic goal that Kenny Dalglish scored at Chelsea as player manager of Liverpool to win the title. And then they completed their first double at Everton's expense. And the FA Cup final was still the biggest show in town. And it was particularly at the time, because it's a year after Heisel and, and all of the major English clubs have been kicked out of Europe. I knew everybody on the field. You know, I'd, OK, I was commentating to a limited audience on local radio. It was on e- ITV and BBC Live. But nonetheless, it it was an important game to me. And I knew I knew them all. I knew the you know, some of their wives and brothers, and I knew what victory and defeat meant. It was, it was, if you like, the ultimate Merseyside. We felt at the time that it was the Merseyside Derby that would end all arguments. I don't know if there's ever been a time weird derby like that. That that kind of game which you felt this is just so much bigger than the the traditional rivalry that we've had with these guys this decides everything. And to me, I, I always say, you know, people say what's the biggest match you ever covered? It was that, and it was that because I knew, I personally knew everybody on the field. And it's interesting. I used to go to a nightclub in Birkenhead, which was run by a guy who was Peter String, one of Peter Stringfellow's best friends. And Peter Stringfellow would ask this guy if they could have the FA Cup in Stringfellows, which was still the number one night spot in London at the time, that night, and as anybody could arrange it. And the winners have got an open invitation to come. And of course, I was probably the fixer who knew enough people in both camps. And I remember as I left Wembley that night, my final job was to find Jan Mulby and Craig Johnston. Say, you're taking the cup to Stringfellows, yeah? And they said, yeah, 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 we're all going. Uh, Are you coming with us? And I said, no, I'm going to the Everton Banquet. And they go, what? And I just, I don't know why. I just felt that I could have gone to either. It was always a dinner after the cup final. But I felt as if I wanted to be with the mates who'd lost. Rather than, I, I hadn't kicked, as Cluffy said, I hadn't kicked a ball. But I felt that I was kind of more valuable, if you like, just drowning sorrows with, with the guys who'd been beaten, beaten twice, really, in the space of a week. So I went to the Royal Garden Hotel that night. And sat with Gary Stevens and uh, and Trevor Stephen and uh, yeah and drank long into the night to, to to defeat. So yeah, that that was the relationship that I had with obviously Reedy and Paul Bracewell were in that uh, in that team. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Your time at on Merseyside for for Radio City. I mean, for someone who covers sport and events and who had covered sport and events up to that time, you mentioned the Heisel and the Hillsborough disasters. I mean, although you were actually on the scene at Heisel and you were reported on Hillsborough after the fact, I mean, was it just about finding an instinct in just pure communication to be able to report on on incidents that become so far removed from the sport and events that you're used to covering?
2: Well, whenever I speak to undergraduates in in the media area, and, and I do quite, I, I get invited quite a lot. I try to emphasize the principles of journalism, because as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion, they're, they're asking for my opinion. Journalism isn't just something w- which you get your hands dirty, you know, with an old newspaper. Jour- journalism is, impor- is as important on television and radio as as, as it is in in print or any kind of communication platform so if you have been somehow schooled and i obviously didn't take any formal education in journalism but i i had a great mentor reg gutteridge who taught me an awful lot about what he his vision of journalism and i think probably that equipped me for that awful night in brussels and it was an awful night because i went to to, to commentate on a football match and finished up counting bodies and I'd never seen a dead body in, in my life bef- before that and they would pile one on top of another um, and, and actually dealing with that and, um, and and being responsible enough to report what you've seen in a way that wasn't alarmist or exaggerated um, it, I, you know those are the are the principles that hopefully media students now learn more formally I'm I'm, uh, I'm involved with a bit of a hookup with uh, um, Gary Neville's involved with the university in Salford. And um, yeah, yeah, we're trying to work on, on laying down those sort of principles of communication, which in a strange sort of way are, I think are more important today than they've ever been. You know, there's so much content out there and so much of it cannot be believed. So much of it is not checked and all, all of those kind of old safeguards that we applied as as, as budding journalists that, that Reg used to hammer into me um are you know sadly absent from an awful lot of reporting that's going on and and, you know without being too serious about it i I think in the in the political sphere it's um it it, it's encouraging the kind of behavior that we've seen from the um former president of the usa and thankfully the outgoing prime minister of this country
1: yeah yeah and and again you know i imagine it's tough to be able to Teach I, on that. I can't of think thing. there are too many
2: Tory voters listening. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm fairly, i fairly safe ground <laughs> to say that I'm a member of the Labour Party and I want them out. Yeah. Is that okay?
1: <laughs> uh, you, you're preaching to the converted, I think. But, uh, but yeah, and and I can, I can't even imagine teaching somebody that because nobody ever expects to be in situations like that and to, to see the things that you saw. Yeah, but it's
2: important at a, at a football match, too, be, because, you know, football plays with our emotions in a way that nothing or very little else in our lives does. And so, you know, even down to, well, I say even down to as if I'm trivializing it, you know, the abuse of a referee, for instance. I mean, there are too many people in my, in my job who don't know the laws of the game. And the laws I don't know, I have written down. I have a crib sheet in my commentary folder. Mm-hmm. With everything there for me to refer to. And, and and actually, when an editor says, Oh, we've got, you know, a former referee, Mike Dean, whoever it happens to be, who's available to me, I, I'm always offended. I think, Well, no, I should know the laws. I, I should be able to interpret. <laughs> and sometimes when he's Peter Walton, I find myself arguing with him, you know. I think, <laughs> Are you sure about that? I'm sure I'm sure I've read something where that's not the case anymore. So, but that's journalism they're doing prep and research to the point where you know more about that football match than anybody watching or listening if you try to pile all the information that you've spent a couple of days uh, prepping onto your audience then you're not doing them any kind of a favor at all what you've got to do then and the important part of journalism is editorializing and our Task really, and it's your task too as a communicator now with people who do hang on your every word. Your assessment of a, a Sunderland performance, or or maybe a major decision taken um, by the owner or by the board, can be quite volatile. It can, you, you know, you can stir, and sometimes you want to stir up feelings and and resistance and opposition to something that your football club is doing. But the more you're involved in interviews with people in and around football the more of an editorial instinct you get for looking at being the playing the devil's advocate looking it from the other side and trying to provide a balanced picture of what it is you're discussing because you know football is is high high emotion and the partisan way in which we support our football club changes us it, you know if we behaved like that all of the time in our lives we'd we'd never get married we'd never parent anybody I mean, it's such a selfish thing supporting your football team it's so blinkered um and and it takes us a little while to come down and actually you know see a game for what it really was and yeah you know you've got to try to provide that kind of judgment and assessment uh fairly soon after the game you've got to become a little detached from um your feelings for. Your beloved football club,
1: absolutely, and I think the the last decade or so with Sunderland, the default has been resistance and um, <laughs> kind of being in a little bit <laughs> cross with things. Towards the the end of the the nineteen eighties, you began to commentate on Granada for for the TV, so you moved to to, to TV from radio, um, and you also became a part of Saint Greavesy, which was a huge part of my early memories of watching football on the TV because there wasn't that much football on TV um, at that time. So it's a a wonderful early memory for me. But, I mean, how how was that experience for you?
2: Well, it was a dream come true. You know, much as my boyhood ambitions were to be a football commentator and, in many respects, local radio satisfied those ambitions, you always want more. And, (laughs) uh, you know, to work on network television, as you say, initially regional television, in granada land my first ever television commentary was um, was a manchester derby funnily enough which um, city won 5-1 and city fans some city fans of a certain vintage could pretty much recite my commentary back to this day uh, it was it, uh, it was such a wonderful day in their lives and uh, around about that same time i was kind of freelancing around television and um, yeah london weekend television asked me to do some things for Saint and Greavesy, I knew Ian very well from m- my time on Merseyside. He actually lived quite close to me. One, one of the, you know, if, if you're putting together that th- that sort of fantasy dinner party, supper party, just or drinks out with a, you know, with a with half a dozen people, um, Saint would would certainly be a candidate to be at, at that table. The greatest teller of Bill Shankly stories of all time, and just just the most wonderful company. So, yeah, I um, I, uh, I got my hands dirty um, often traveling around the country, including um, reporting in Scotland, putting a, a film piece together maybe on a Wednesday and then bringing it back to London Thursday, Friday to edit it, voice it up. There were great days. The old ITV building on the south bank of the Thames, which until recently was the home of Anton Dex, so the, the Saturday night takeaway shot that 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 was the, the the old skyscraper on the on the banks of the thames there and there used to be a fabulous friday night show with music and uh, ben elton used to do the loads of money and uh, and that was that was live and we used to finish editing go in watch that for nothing and then i'd stay in a hotel and very often on a saturday morning i'd be heading up first thing on the train back up to the northwest of england to commentate Either on a football match for ITV for Granada Highlights or on rugby league. We did rugby league live too um, during that time. So they were very, very exciting days for me. And um I didn't know Jimmy well. Strangely, we'd mentioned it with Brian. If we hung around in London on the Saturday for the show, the guys would all go again to the bar, as you do after the show. And and Jimmy, almost like the Lone Ranger would just disappear. He'd just be gone. And, you know, tiptoe quietly out of the building, knowing that he couldn't even, you know, look at a, a pint of beer being pulled. Um, but, yeah, we would stay there all afternoon with Saints and, and chew the fat. And, uh, yeah, it, it's it's I, I don't know. I, I suppose you I, I listen. I love my job to this day and um, to the point where I miss the things that I had a couple of years ago and have been taken away from me because I would still like love to be doing them. But if I do get reflective at any time, I I do feel that I've been lucky to do what I do during the period that I've done it. And a little bit to do with that relationship between football and its media. I had those early days when we were close to the players and, you know, I had those early days in television of absolutely massive television audiences for live football, because there was relatively little of it, you know, those famous Champions League finals that I commentated on were watched by more than 20 million people and have had England games at World Cups with at nearly 30 million. And you can't ask for more than that. And, mm-hmm. and without perhaps the jeopardy or the scrutiny that comes with social media today, you know, that that's changed our jobs a lot in, in the last 10 years. And if this sounds like a moan and a complaint, it's not. I, I say I, it, it's it comes with the territory and it's cool it's fine but it was different in the Satan Greavesy day Satan Greavesy was probably the best reflection of how we thought about football then and I do believe quite a lot of people still view football in a Satan Greavesy kind of way <laughs> but it's you, you no 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 television company would commission Saint Greavesy anymore. That it would it, there would be a feeling that it was dated and maybe even dangerous. And yeah. that that you know the world the, the world changes for the better for in in many many respects. We've got um, kids kids in their late twenties and I, and I love their you know, their principles and, um, you know, their sense of caring about some of the major issues, which probably my my generation didn't care enough about, like, like the future of the planet and things like that. But the sense of fun that surrounded football was a little bit of an, I, I know we lived through a terrible hooligan era, which would contradict that. But I think there was more of a sense of fun camaraderie around football generally, And I I think some of the rival, Everton-Liverpool is a very good example. It it, it really was, to a large extent, a fairly friendly derby. It was a bit Scousers against the world, really, back then in that, you know, during the Thatcher era. So, and and Hillsborough actually was a, a binding influence on the clubs. But now, when I go to a Merseyside derby, I don't know, it's just a little bit. It's it's bitter, and and I, I don't know if the the, would, the same would be true with you and your friends up the coast. I don't know whether it's turned a bit nastier, has it?
1: Well, well, it's been a while since we played them, and um, to be honest, we uh, we we I think we got a little bit bored of celebrating. To be honest, because I think we beat them seven <laughs> times in a row, so I'm glad. I'm... You you spot a really <laughs>
2: good lunch for me. I one of our boys was at university in Durham, and he was always talking about going to a, a big match and. I I know Alan Pardew quite well, and we fixed to go to a lunchtime derby at St James's. You know what's coming here. I think it was 2014, and I know you were winning them. You were, you won like four or five in a row, or something. But we were guests of Newcastle United that day, and we turn up at St James's about 10:30. We were we went straight into some f- fabulous sort of hospitality suite where our son and the mate he brought with him were immediately given champagne. Uh, we were sitting at Alan's table. Uh, his wife was there with the two daughters of similar age who were both quite attractive young women. So our boys uh, and his mate were, uh, they were absolutely in heaven. They didn't really give a care who won the game. But I I obviously went and, and sat in the director's box with Alan's wife and, and my wife. And you were two up at halftime. Uh, there was a guy came and tore his season ticket up in, in front of Alan, right in the dugout there. And Mrs. P didn't even come out for the second half. It was it was hostile. You won 3-0 and totally spoilt our day. And we flew back um, from Newcastle, back down to London. And when we got to the airport, the first person I saw in the lounge was Shazie. <laughs> I was like, John O'Shea. <laughs> I was like, oh, you. So you really spoilt our day. <laughs> He's got a big silly grin on his face. So there you are. You're... Your memories of that 3-0 win at St James are not the same as mine.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, there's been so many, I can't remember which which one that was to be honest, there's been that many. But uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean it, in terms of Sunderland experiences you you've just talked about one there and you know, I mentioned that with Jimmy Greaves I doubt he ever forgot sitting on that crows' nest in the on top of the clock stand. But I mean, I mean just going to, you know on to experiences specific to Sunderland. I think uh, you covered the the Roy Keane Red card um, with, with his altercation with Jason McAteer, shall we say.
2: Yeah, and, and Roy, to this day, is angry with himself. It, it's one thing being won up by Alan Shearer and getting sent <laughs> off. But it, these are his words, not mine. I know Jason too. But Jason McAteer, you know. Um, and I, something equalised quite late in the game, which, uh, you know, Roy hated that, the sort of losing, losing a match that he felt that Manchester United should have won. But it was right at the start of the season after Saipan and and the big blow-up in the Irish camp at, at the World Cup finals. And, um, I mean, Reedy, Reedy was the manager. Um, and I, I obviously knew Sir Alec Ferguson pretty well by then. I'd done a lot of work with Manchester United in Champions League finals and stuff. And he, he trusted me and was very, very good to me. I knew Niall. Um I didn't know Roy at all. I didn't know Roy from Adam back then. I mean, he didn't talk to the media. So after the game, which I guess it might have been, I might have been commentating for ITV. It might have been during that period when we, when ITV nicked match batch of the day away from the BBC. And Reedy really said, come and have a drink in the office afterwards. So I went into the office, into Peter's office after doing the interviews. And I don't even recall, but as Roy Keane walked off, Niall, Bless him, yeah. decided this is a good moment <laughs> for me to discuss Saipan with him on the touch life. Now, now there's one of the more intelligent footballers I've ever met, but I don't think his judgment was was particularly accurate that day. Yeah. <laughs> he tried to shake his hand yeah. as Roy came off. And if Fergie was unhappy with the result, I think somebody got injured. I've got a feeling Mikhail Silvestre got injured that day. So the, the, they didn't show in in the in the manager's office which is unusual for Manchester United wouldn't lose a draw you know Fergie's old old school and would always come in and have a drink um so we sat there chewing the fat and uh and Niall's in the room and suddenly the door opened without knock and it was Fergie and he said I was told you were in here and he didn't want to talk to Reedy or anybody else he just wanted to have it out with Niall And there was one of those wonderful thirty-second hairdryer moments, which I've actually been on the end of a couple myself. (laughs) (laughs) And then he just departed, slammed the door, and then he opened again and he pointed at Reedy and he said, "Well played today." (laughs) Closed (laughs) the door again and was gone again. And and they—they've got the magnificence of the man, the anger of what he perceived had been done to his player, his captain, almost unnecessarily, sort of shown up in front of however many 40,000 people. But then the kind of common football decency to say, hey, by the way, you deserve that point. And,
1: yeah. and yeah. up he went. <laughs> yeah, actually, well, when when I remembered that just there when you were talking about it, I, I think Ferguson actually um, ran up to, to Quinn on the sidelines when he went up to Roy Keane, I think. I think he ran over and kind of... He was what, obviously what hunting
2: for him afterwards. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Saipan there and um, I think that your kind of coverage of those major tournaments started in 1990 as part of the, the team for V, which was the start of you being the of pretty much every major tournament since then and it might be because of my age um, at that time but I always think there was something special about the 1990 World Cup even if maybe the football actually wasn't that great at that (laughs) tournament but it just had something about it but having covered so many tournaments which ones kind of stick out for you as personal favourite?
2: Well I didn't go to Italy in nineteen ninety. I was part of the ITV team back in London the first major tournament I went to cover was 92 as part of the ITV team. And then in 94, my first World Cup was during my four years at the BBC, um, where, as I always say, I I was Steve Cram during my, that period of the BBC. I, um, I was Steve Cram lining up against Steve Overt and Sebastian Coe. You're running for third place. And, of course, um, Motti and Barry Davis were in their prime. So I was only ever going to get the third best game during my uh, um my bbc days it's difficult i think i think probably south africa made a massive impression on me it's a country that i've visited since uh, I, felt, I, felt, I think cape town's maybe the most beautiful city i've ever visited i couldn't wait to take my wife back the following year after after seeing it during the world cup finals um i had the, the privilege of doing uh, a couple of charity events with uh, Gracia Michelle, who was um, Mandela's second wife, and she was a really inspirational woman. The whole tournament was played under the shadow of his illness, um, but when he came out before the final, we had um, uh, obviously quite heavy security at, at, at that time, and um, uh, there was a little guy uh, who was very African and, and used to work for de Klerk uh, in, in security, and he was a pretty tough nut. And uh, I just saw him in tears next to me in the stadium and he just grabbed my arm and he said, that guy, that guy saved this nation. And um, I suppose, to get, obviously, I, d- I didn't meet him, but just uh, having visited Robin Island and, you know, it was a, it was a happy place to be um, for four weeks. All South African people came together and there was a real pride in showing off their nation to the world at a major sporting event. They'd won the Rugby World Cup a few years earlier, uh, very famously. So... Yeah, that that would that would take some beating, uh, you know, probably as a as an experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like you said, you you went you joined the BBC as kind of the Premier League kicked off when the BBC had that highlights package and B Sky B as it was then, they began its coverage of of the top flight. I mean, did at the time did you and maybe everyone else in broadcasting realize at the time that Sky were were moving the goalposts in terms of that live coverage and things would just change after that.
2: Well, the summer of 1992 was, was a, 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 a massive time in terms of football in our country and, and the television coverage of it. It's around about then that the European Cup became the Champions League. The Premier League um, was formed in the summer of 92. ITV actually had the rights to first division foot, life football. You may re- remember prior to that, and uh, B took it over. Their highlights partner were the BBC, much a match of the day, took what football ITV had away from them, really. Uh, And even as I mentioned before, I was a rugby league commentator on ITV, um, which I really, really enjoyed. And we lost that to Sky too. Um, And during the European finals in 92, I I went pretty disconsolately as uh, an ITV freelance into a camp where we were losing all of our contracts and there was going to be no work. And I actually got a phone call during the course of that championship, which took me to the BBC for four years. I didn't know for sure how it would take off. And, you know, we're talking about 30 years of the Premier League. And even though we all were, you know, there was football before, football wasn't invented in 1992, T-shirts with pride. (laughs) um, The Premier League has been a dramatic success. Um, There's no question about that. You can argue the detail and you can certainly argue the rich have got richer. And it's maybe anesthetized football in in a in a way which the terrace fan you know might have an issue with, but a lot of things had to change, and um, in many ways the Premier League was a response to the fearful state that English football had got itself into. I mean, you're you're obviously an age where you went to watch your Black Cats in the in the mid eighties, and and to the sound of hard bricks on glass. And and I remember, you know, I remember those days. And and anybody who tries to romanticize any of that, you know, Green Street and all that nonsense, they were horrible days. And we lived, you know, we lived in... I don't know why we went to football, really, because it was dangerous. And so something had to change. I, I'm still nervous about safe standing to this day. I mean, I get it, and, and it is safe. And it is important to try to bring that element back into into football, particularly if it's more affordable. I mean, that's a big if, by the way. If they're going to just charge you as much to stand as they did to sit, then that's another matter. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we've all been in on the, in those away ends where you tumble 30 yards forward and you're not sure whether you're going to fall under the hooves or hit a crash barrier or, or, or what. It, 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 everything had to change. And actually, Premier League and Sky and everything that's gone with that is part of that change and a little bit like Roker and Stadium of Light it's better it's not the same and we can yeah. still get uh, doughy eyed about the past but it's better now
1: yeah yeah I, I mean just going back to the, the, the commentary I mean you, you'll move back to the ITV in the mid-90s you know there was a time when European Cup changed into the Champions League and that just seemed to just take off and that, that kind of seemed to kind of build up throughout the 90s you know Manchester United's Phelan's, and then suddenly you know they they kind of built up to that crescendo in nineteen ninety nine um with the champions league final that's that sealed their treble and and obviously you commentated on that that huge moment um but i mean in terms of there was multiple huge moments you know across across the years i mean is there ever a time where you suddenly almost realize that you are the voice of this huge thing that, that's happening right in front of you and you take a second to make sure you you get it right or you leave it to the atmosphere itself to, to describe what's happening.
2: Well, as I say, I had a very good mentor who used to ask those questions of me all the time and a pretty tough love, Reg Gutteridge. I mean, he was good for me in that in that respect. Did you want Manchester United to win that night? Uh,
1: yeah, good yeah question, I did. Isn't it? I I did because um, you know an English club hadn't won the, the European Cup for a exactly good and, while and, and beat
2: beat a German team which would English England fans hadn't seen and did it in their way and did it with a swagger. But it's funny I re, I remember walking back to the hotel we 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 were actually in a hotel which was 20, 25 minute walk from the new camp and wondering whether I'd overdone it, um, <laughs> wondering almost whether you know that, that the golden age of the, great, the late, great Brian Moore, where it was our boys, our plucky boys on foreign shores, irrespective of whether it was Leeds or whoever, whether they had passed, and whether, in fact, during that commentary in '99, every Everton, uh, Liverpool, Man City, Leeds, West Ham fan had been throwing things at the screen, and we we had Sky News in the in the in the rooms in the hotel. And I remember turning on when I got back before going down, and having a few reoccers with the team. And there was almost a feeling that England had won the. It was almost that kind of celebration, celebratory feel. And I thought to myself, no, that's that's okay. I think I've got it right tonight. I think it's almost like the most ardent City fan was saying, "Go on, enjoy your night. Um, you'll get dogs abuse when you come to our place next season, even more so." <laughs> but on you go. I'm, I'm not sure. And that might have been the last of those nights. It, it. I'm not sure there was quite as much warmth for, say, Liverpool winning in 05 in the dramatic way that they... I think maybe there was a, a a changing of our feelings about football, but perhaps what I was saying a bit earlier about the hardening of the rivalries. And, of course, with social media and that kind of scrutiny... Yeah, the job has changed during that period and i'd hate to say that it's become less fun um because i i still love it but some of that importance which you're kind of alluding to comes now with a health warning attached and that's i think I'll, i'm i'm off I, I don't mind political correctness because political correctness is 90 percent of the time it's just respecting other people's feelings and stances and cultures. And that's great. I'm absolutely cool with that. We, we do have a responsibility as communicators not to offend if we can possibly help it. But it's not so much, I always say, I don't mind the haters, everybody's entitled to an opinion. It's what I call the vultures on social media. The people who are sort of circling above us all saying, did, did he just say something that might be, something that might, that, that it's almost like we're taking a test Rather than doing a broadcast, and I wrote in the book that both Trump and Johnson have said many things in the last decade that would have got me the sack on the spot. That they're elected officials who are leading the free world. I'm just the guy who shouts the names out. You know, where did I suddenly become responsible for the, you know, the moral continence of the whole country? I I I don't get that. And and, um, <laughs> and fully enough, I. I said in the uh, I did the Peter Crouch podcast uh, I do it annually and I did it quite recently and I got quite a quite a few ticks from people for suggesting that commentators should be allowed one fuck per season we should bet you know, sometimes it's the only word that will do and um we've got to be allowed to say it once with impunity because uh, that that kind of of expectation of us to commentate like um I don't know, the Archbishop of Canterbury is, is a bit unreasonable.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I know no we'll push for time, so we'll um we'll start to kind of uh, wrap things up a little bit. But um I, I noticed a couple of years ago you released your book. I think you've mentioned it already, not not for me, Clive, which is a cracking crack and read. Um recommended anyone who fancies a read on the holidays or anything to to grab a copy and, and have a have a read through it. You also have a website that sells commentary charts of games for various clubs. And I noticed I looked on the website, you've got our Playoff final from last year in case anyone's looking for a gift for a Sunderland fan in, in the near future
2: yeah I, I think I think we, we started that with, with games that I'd commentated on there've been some requests for them and during lockdown we sort of launched with just a, a few charts of you know those Champions League finals and so on that you refer to and then uh, suddenly fans of different clubs started saying well where's ours and we had a lot of correspondence from Sunderland fans, and there are a lot of Sunderland fans who care a lot about their football club. And particularly when we released Newcastle 5, Mass United <laughs> where's ours? <laughs> um, and I actually talked to people at the club and said, well, you can't do 1973. It's, I mean, it's so long ago now. Um, yeah, I, I can put a chart together for 1973 with retrospective research, and it's it's a nice memento. Um, and we've almost been waiting for that for that moment and um and sure enough um that that moment arrived and um uh, i wasn't at the game and and i say in the accompanying letter you know this i i wish i'd been at the game but i hadn't i wasn't actually there but you've asked me to create a chart for an iconic sunderland moment and here it is and um and so it is uh, a a, a print of the research notes that I would have prepared in my style if I'd been commentating on, on the, the final against Wickham. And um, yeah, it's, it's a nice little memento for the, how many of you went? 40,000, something like that more, 45.
1: Yeah. I think there was more about 50 or 60. Yeah,
2: It's a sort of snapshot of kickoff because it's all the lineups and all the information before the game it doesn't tell you how the, how the final was won. You kind of add your own memories of, of your day, whether you were at Wembley or whether you were watching it back on Wizside side. Um so yeah, it's 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 there on commentarycharts.com. The the yeah. at, at last the Sunderland print.
1: <laughs> yeah, but well, for, for reference for Sunderland fans, it's very much like our own Nick Barnes um his yeah. book that he has his uh, commentary notes for and it's very much like that but for an individual game
2: Nick's got one so that's
1: nice (laughs) oh but there you go brilliant brilliant um and I mean just quickly as well I mean we mentioned you do talk sport now I mean what is left for Clive Tilsey is there any more is there any events that you haven't done is there any more kind of ambition that you've still got to say that's something I would still love to do
2: um I you know i I'm I'm I don't score the goals that, you know, in the, the 99 <laughs> Champions League final or the 05. I just happen to be there. So you never quite know um, until you turn up. You know, with the the Wayne Rooney goal against Arsenal, probably one of the most famous I've ever commented. He started that night on the bench, you know, on that day on the bench. You don't know he's going to come on and become the youngest Premier League goal scorer of all time and end an unbeaten record with a fabulous goal past the England keeper in the last minute. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah, you prepare for every game. Obviously, I'm, uh, I, I've lost a couple of gigs that were really, really important to me because people felt that, you know, a younger man was needed to do those jobs. I, you get setbacks, and I can't pretend they're not setbacks when they arrive. But as long as people still value my work to the point of asking me, then I'll you know I give as much professionalism and preparation to, to the games that I'm still asked to do. And, um yeah talk sport um it's nice to return to my radio roots I'm doing Champions League European games for the American network now CBS which is is a lot of fun uh, I' still be doing some FA Cup for ITV and and indeed I'll be at the World Cup Finals for ITV um albeit not as the lead commentator now um but that's cool it's fine it's um it, this this if somebody had said to me you, you know when I was that teenager or kid running around the garden, Kicking a football and commentating to myself, that I would commentate on one game on television one day. That would probably be enough. I've commentated on a million and one, um, so any more than I can add to that tally in in the remaining uh, years ahead is is a bonus now.
1: Yeah, Well, I for one hope we continue to hear your voice uh, for a long time to come because it is one of the great voices of, of English football and, well, European football and international football and and uh, and everything else. But, uh, but on that note, I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time out, Clive, and um, I do appreciate your time and sticking around uh, this long for us. It's been a, a privilege and an absolute pleasure. Lovely. Enjoy the season. Yep, brilliant. Give us a shout if you head up north and, um, you know, maybe in the Premier League this time, next year, who knows. <laughs> Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Keep a look at Roka Report for all our usual daily coverage on the lads and keep an eye out on all the usual places for the next pod It should be dropping very soon. But from us, bye for now.